I'm going to shake your hand. Man, that messed me up. That's just, that's... Oh, my goodness. Uh, thank you for uh, coming. I uh, want to encourage all of you, uh, really, uh, what Liz mentioned about trying to take advantage of uh, everything that's offered over the next, uh, through, through this evening and tomorrow. And I've, I've seen the lineup, and I've met a number of the folks who are going to be speaking and being with you. And uh, it's... Um, It, it is not always easy to uh, hear the things that God is trying to tell us, uh, even though those things are really good for us to hear. It's not always easy. And uh, so I, I want to encourage you to know that uh, there may be elements, there may be moments in the next day in which um, the things that are going to be most pressing, most necessary for you to hear may also be things that you sense are difficult to hear. You're going to be sitting in your seat and you're going to be feeling your heart rate go up. Or you're going to be sitting in your seat and you're going to be thinking, I'm not feeling a thing. Because something is happening within you that uh, is a response to what you're hearing. And I just want to invite you to consider that uh, if, if you've, I, I, I'm stealing this line because I, I've, seen, I've seen the musical Hamilton in New York, right? And I just want to say, like, you want to be in the room where it happens, right? You want to be in the room. And I want to tell you, in the next uh, 18 hours, this is the room where it's happening. So one thing to say is that, uh, you know, we sometimes come to conferences. And um, how many of us, when we, when we come to conferences, we're thinking, like, I'm really glad to go to a conference because I can leave my real life at home. Amen? I just want to let you know, like, your real life is still happening in this room. Some of you don't think so. You're going to see Liz over the next week, right? Because you have the whole delusional thing. Some of you are a little slow on the uptake. You'll get it. Um, but I want to invite us to be open to what the Holy Spirit really wants to do in this space. Because this is not a separate space from your real life. This is your real life. And so uh, my, uh, my hope is that in the time that I have with you is that I can um, set a bit of pace and set a bit of groundwork for what we're going to be doing throughout the rest of our time. And uh, the, the, the title of our time together includes the words mental health. The title of my particular talk has to do with this question of what it means to move from a notion of dualism to a notion of integration. I think that's in your program, is that right? Like, I have no idea what those words mean, but I, I, it's, in, it's, in your, it's in your program, dualism. Um, uh, but I want to say what we are going to do in, in our time is that we are going to spend some time talking about neuroscience and about the mind and the brain. Um, but we're also going to spend some time, we're going to begin with this, talking about anthropology. And the reason it's important to talk about anthropology, that notion of like, what does it mean for us to be human in the first place? Right? We can't really know what mental health is, let alone what mental illness is, if we don't first understand who we are as human beings. 
And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. But the first thing I'm going to do is tell you a story about my friend Paul. My friend Paul was an entrepreneur uh, who, as it turned out, ended up coming to see me for a consultation because he was in charge of one of the fastest growing companies in the technology corridor that exists between D.C. and uh, out 270 um, to Frederick, Maryland. And uh, his company was exploding with growth. And over the course of the time of that growth, uh, Paul, who was a deeply committed believer, um, was trying his best to manage all of the growth. And in the course of this growth, things started to get out of control for him. And uh, he was feeling like he couldn't talk to his board about this, and so instead, he started to talk to Jim Bean. You know Jim? Hmm. Yeah. And the more that he talked to Jim Bean, the more he felt like as long as he had Jim, he didn't need anybody else to continue to do the work in his company. Until one day, uh, what continued to go okay at work was not going okay at home, and his wife said, if you don't tell your board what's going on, I'm going to. Because what's happening with you and your drinking is not only going to ruin your company, it's going to ruin your family. You're going to lose everything. Now, this company that I'm talking about, that he was in charge of, was one of the fastest growing churches in Northern Virginia. His board was his board of elders. Now, how many of us, when I'm telling this story, how many of us were sure that who Kurt's talking about is a pastor? It happens every day. And when he came to see me, he wasn't just awash in alcohol. He was depressed. He was having panic events multiple times a day. And there was no getting out of the fact that he was also close to wanting to take his own life because he saw no way out. Now, some of us may know my friend Paul. Some of us may be my friend Paul. But whether it's that particular picture that I've just described with him or some other picture, every single one of us in this room tonight comes with some element of Paul within us. We all come with some element of brokenness. We all come with some element of our sense of inability to change where we want to go. I want us to remember Paul, and now I want us to hear these words. And these are words that we don't typically think about or talk about when we're talking about mental health and the church. I'm going to start with this. And this is, interestingly enough, from the 27th Psalm and the fourth verse. And it reads this. One thing I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple. Read that again. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple. Now, 
I want us to uh, hang on to this, and I want us to be ready to imagine how this has anything to do with our topic of mental health and being in the church. Keeping that in mind and keeping Paul's story in mind, I now want to give us uh, just an invitation to um, imagine what it means for us as Christians to think about our anthropology. For us as Christians to consider what does it mean for us to be human? And for us to think about that from a Christian perspective, before we get to the question of what the mind is, before we get to the question of what we do to intervene, by the way, I'm just so glad, where is Liz? Where'd she go? Right there. I'm so glad that there's another psychiatrist in the room. Seriously, you know, I, I, I think I said this two years ago, like I'm, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist and I live in Washington, right? So I'll never be out of a job. This is gonna be great, right? <laughs> But it's, it's always good to know that you have another one of your own so that you're not the only drug dealer in the room. It's a great <laughs> thing to know that. So thanks for coming. It's great. When we open the first texts of Genesis, we see the following. That in the first chapter of Genesis... The Lord God on day one, day two, day three, day four, he made things, and as he did so, he separated things. He made, on the first day, light, and he separated light from darkness. And then he separated the two masses of water from each other. And then he separated land from sea, and then he separated birds from the air from the fish of the sea. Separated, separated, separated. He gets to the end of his week, he gets to the sixth day, in the 26th and 27th verses, and God says, let us make mankind in our image, and let us make man to rule over everything. And so God made them, male and female. And once again, he separated them. But he did so, I want to suggest, in order for him not to stop there, but for him then to continue in Genesis chapter 2. And we get a different flavor of what that creation narrative looks like. And one of the things that's most important that jumps off the page at me is the seventh verse where we read, and God formed the man from the dust of the earth, and he breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and man became a living being. Notice it doesn't say he started with breath and he threw some mud at it and it became a living being. He formed the man from dirt and he breathed breath into the dirt and that became a living being. I want to invite us to remember this and here's the other thing. I want you to picture this in your mind. What is it like for God to be in the dirt making things with his hands? We'll come back to that because it's important for us to know that we first are dirt. Congratulations. First we are dirt, and then we are breath added to dirt, and we are living beings. And if we are without dirt, or if we are without breath, we aren't human. Our dirt reminds us of our bodies. Which means, God thought my body, your body, our body, is a pretty important part of what it means to be human. That means that when Paul, my friend, the pastor, is in trouble. 
He's not just in trouble because he happens to have suicidal thoughts. He's in trouble because his body is in trouble before anything else. But we are also people of breath. And by breath, that constitutes in the Hebrew this sense of life. This sense of life that is relationally based. You see, because my mind isn't just my body. My mind is also my relationships. I can't separate the dirt from the breath. And if I do, I stop being human. Remember, the first thing we're doing is trying to figure out what does it mean for us to be human. And after that, we read in the 18th verse of that second chapter, God saying it's not good for man to be alone. And so what does he do? He separates. And then he brings the woman to the man. He brings them back together. And I want to suggest to you that this is a big deal. This coming together is not just a coming together of two things that are the same. No, as we say, men and women, male and female, actually, when it comes to our brains, all the way to most of who we are, we're really quite similar. Two eyes, two ears, nose, mouth, hands. Well, there's a lot of us that are really similar. But where we are different, we are infinitely different. And he brings the woman to the man... And at the end of that chapter, we see this. We see that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. We see this human couple that is the epitome, that it is the zenith of God's creation in which he has made things and separated things. Made things and separated things in order for them to be brought back together in their wholeness. And it begins with male and female being brought together in their wholeness. And these words in the Hebrew that they were naked refers actually not first just to their physicality because that is not to just conjure images of sexuality and sexual intercourse and so forth. It is also primarily intended to create the image of vulnerability. We are the only animals that dress themselves. Did you know that? Now, we dress other animals. God knows why. I, like, I'm in northern Virginia, in Ohio, like, where I'm from, right? You've got, like, dogs with coats on. Look, they already have a coat. Like, I don't need another coat if I'm a dog. But of course, like, I'm, I'm talking to you. You're not listening to me as I'm, as, if I'm the dog. You're not, you just keep putting the coat on me. We are the only creature that dress themselves because we are deeply aware that we are vulnerable. But I want to say this to us. It is important that we recognize in that text <clears throat> that it is, in fact, our vulnerability that is one of the key elements that prepares us to be creative. It is in our vulnerability, it is in our vulnerability you heard me. It is in our vulnerability that we are being prepared to create. You know, you just imagine this. Look, God could have had human beings, he could have made human beings like any way he wanted to. He could have made human beings like, he just says like, let there be human beings. And like, we're all the same. We look the same. There's no difference in gender. None of that. In the same way, he could have made it possible for us to 
create other human beings simply by virtue of like shaking hands. Although there would be lots of children that we wouldn't be expecting. But notice, he doesn't do that. He puts us in a position where in which if we are going to create those that are the most beautiful things that human beings make, we will have to be naked in some way, shape, or form. Are you with me? Here's the thing. That's not just about making children. That's about making anything. We were made to make stuff. We were created to create things. We were created to create things with joy. Therefore, let us make mankind in our image and let them live like we live. And there they stood on the precipice of that moment of greatest creativity. Naked and there's no shame in the conversation. And it's not hard to see that if, if you're the writer of the text, you know, you're getting people ready to read the next chapter. But one could have said anything. The Hebrews had all kinds of words for what it felt like to be naked and happy. Right? Because if I'm Adam and she's naked, I'm happy. Naked and unafraid. Naked and a whole range of things that we could say. Naked and unashamed is what is said. And that's important for us to recognize that as they are there, they are demonstrating at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, having come all the way from the beginning of chapter 1 with this whole notion of God making and separating, making and separating, then bringing back together, he's painting a picture for us that neuroscience now tells us is the way the mind actually operates. Let's talk then a little bit. We're going to pause on our anthropology and let's talk a little bit about if we're talking about mental health, one would like to know, well, what does it mean to be mental? Sort of, right? What does it mean for us to be mentally healthy? Well, if we're going to answer that question, presumably we would have to know what, in fact, the mind is in order for us to know, like, what does a healthy mind look like? Fair enough? So, remembering this notion of separating and coming back together and separating and coming back together, in my world, in our field of interpersonal neurobiology, we like to talk about the notion of the mind in the following terms. We would say that the mind is an embodied and relational process that emerges from within and between brains whose task it is to regulate the flow of energy and information. Do you get that? <laughs> yeah, okay. We'll, we're just going to walk through this. Right? So the, the mind is an embodied and relational process. First of all, it's embodied. My mind is not limited to my brain. My mind is not limited to my thoughts. My mind includes my entire body. It's how I know that I'm anxious. It's how I know that I'm angry. It's how I know that I need to flee. It involves my entire physical being. Remember, we are first dirt. God formed the man out of the dust, out of the dirt of the earth. And so, 
to love God with all of my mind, first of all, means that I have to love him with everything that I'm aware of that my body does. And if I'm not paying attention to my body, I'm not paying attention to significant parts that God has created my mind to be. The mind is an embodied and relational process. And by a relational process, we mean that in order for my mind to flourish, in order for me to love God with all my mind, I have to recognize that my mind needs relationships in order for me not just to thrive, but to survive. When a newborn comes into the world, all 100 billion plus or minus a couple of hundred thousand neurons that are in her little brain, of those, only about 20% are ready to do the work they need to do. The other 70 to 80% need interactions with other human brains in order for them to eventually come online and do their job. No pressure, parents. And so we see in this way our relationality, our walking into the room and seeing the newborn and we lock eyes and we see them lock eyes with us and I will tell you, when you do that, you are turning things on in her little brain that won't be turned on if you don't. Hagar in the desert, behold, the God who sees me. How important is it for us to know that we are being seen? One of my friend Paul's problems was that he had positioned himself such that he could not be seen by anyone. It was too great a risk. The mind is an embodied and relational process. It also reminds us of the 26 and 27 verses of the first chapter of Genesis. Let us make mankind in our image. Right, so therefore to be in the image of God, it's important to know, I, Kurt, am not ultimately just in the image of God by myself. I am in the image of God primarily because it is me and you together. Are you with me? We live in a culture that makes it very hard for us to believe this. We live in a culture in which I want to think that it's just me and Jesus. It's important to know he doesn't give us that option. The mind is embodied and relational. And it's emergent process. It's a process that emerges. By process, we mean that the mind is always moving. The mind is always moving. The only thing that changes is its pace. So we might find ourselves feeling like we don't have much energy in our thinking processes. We might find ourselves in positions in which our minds are scattered all over the place, bouncing all over the place. Our capacity to really be at a pace of movement that is healthy depends upon my awareness of my body and my relational connections. Paul's pace was off. Working, 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 working. 70, 80 hour weeks. I'm sure nobody here who knows a pastor has ever done that. This process that emerges from within and between brains. Now here's another thing. I mean, I don't know about you, but I like to be in charge of everything. I don't mean just in charge of my life. I mean in charge of mine and your life. Because if I can be in charge of your life, then I can certainly make sure that you don't do anything to mess up my ability to be in charge of my life. Amen? All right. 
And so the problem with the mind, the problem with the way God has made the mind to operate is that it is an emergent process. And by emergent we mean that my mind actually operates in such a way that the whole is larger than the sum of its parts. Meaning that who I am depends upon not just things that I think about me, but depends upon things that you think about me. As we will come to find out, one of the highlights of what it means to be human to be a human with a human mind is that we tell stories, right? We are storytellers. Now, dogs may tell stories, but they don't tell us the stories they're telling each other, <laughs> especially about all those coats that their owners put on them. The way we tell stories, one of the things that we learn about what it means for us to tell stories is that human beings never tell stories by themselves. Our stories are always told, first of all, before you're even born by somebody else. They're thinking about you. They're deciding whether they want you or not. Once you get here, they decided whether or not it's good that you're here or not. And they put on very silly clothes that you have no choice in, right, on you. But the point is that, like, from then on, like, you are telling your story, but never without somebody else's voice collaborating with you. One of the questions we would ask is, who are the voices you're listening to who are telling you who you are? Because I will tell you, you're listening to somebody's. It's not a matter of am I, it's a matter of whose voices am I listening to? All these things are part of what's happening in the mind. Paul was listening to the voice of a father who had raised him to make sure that he never, ever lost control, and the reason that he was not ever going to lose control was because if Paul ever did, he would be just like his alcoholic father, whom he swore he would never grow into being. Because when Paul met Jesus when he was 20, through a campus ministry group, and his life was transformed, Paul thought not just did he meet Jesus, but he thought that everything about his life his life growing up in a house with an alcoholic father was changed forever. He could leave all that behind. It was hard for him to believe that he turned into his father as a 48-year-old. Because Paul wasn't aware of how his story was continuing to be told by his dad's voice even though he thought he wasn't paying attention to him. Are you with me? And so we then move to this notion that it's an emerging process because somebody else tells part of my story and they tell things that I don't see coming. And things happen in the course of my day that in fact I can't control, that I can't be in charge of. And so my mind is gonna have to accommodate lots of things about what happens in the world that have got nothing to do with my agency. In this world, you will have tribulation. But do not be afraid. I've overcome the world. It's an emerging process that happens to emerge from within and between brains, whose task it is to regulate the flow of energy and information. This notion that it's not just my brain, but your brain that matter in my sense of who I am, and your body, and your relationality. And so it's important to know that even here, while we're seated, People who are seated next to us are having impact on us even if we are not aware that that's the case. And you're like, is it okay to move in the middle of a talk? 
That's a working definition of the mind, and there's a lot more we could say about that, but having a definition doesn't tell us exactly what the mind does, and so there's some other elements that we would include in this understanding of what our mind is. And for one thing that we would say is that our mind reflects the 86th Psalm in the 11th verse, where the writer says this, create within me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. This notion that the mind and its definition that we've just given actually operates in a multi-dimensional fashion. What do we mean by a multi-dimensional fashion? We mean that your mind is not homogenous. Your mind is not just one kind of neuron, one kind of brain cell. Your mind is made up of multiple different kinds of brain cells, and your mind is made up of multiple different parts of the brain that do very, very different things, just like an orchestra. If you want to go hear Mahler's symphony, you don't just want to hear brass. You want to hear everything. And that's the beauty of symphonies, and this is the beauty of a working mind, that we have all these different parts that come together in a symphonic whole, in order for it to flourish. But here's the key element. In order for my mind, with all of its different parts that we'll talk about just a little bit in a moment, with all those different parts at work, I need somebody else's mind to help my mind begin to do that. My mind cannot come into its place of wholeness unless I have someone else who is seeing me be present in the world. Notice, in order for my mind to develop, I need someone else because as a newborn, I am naked. And ideally, shame is not going to have too much of voice in my life. In this way, I am vulnerable and in need of you to enable me to flourish. And here's the news, it never stops when you are 25 years old, you will be, in many respects, just as vulnerable in many ways as that newborn. When you are 85 years old, you will be, in many respects, and in some new respects, vulnerable in ways that that newborn is vulnerable. Here's the thing. We were made to live vulnerably. It's not something we have a choice in. Well, I'm not going to be vulnerable with you. Like, you don't have to, but that doesn't mean that you aren't. You're still wearing clothes, right? Because we are vulnerably created. And so there are these different orchestral parts of our mind that the interaction with another human relationship are going to bring to the forefront. What are some of those parts? Well, here's one. We would say that um, one of the first functions of your mind is that of consciousness. Out of consciousness, right? The first thing you have to be is like awake. Hopefully you're that. Then you have to be alert. Some of you are that. And then you have to be attuned. I have to be like aware that I'm aware in ways that squirrels probably aren't, right? Human beings, as far as we know, are the only animals that are aware that 
they are aware of things. And the key element, the key function of this particular part of our mind's work is that of attention. How well are you paying attention to what you're paying attention to? Because the function of attention is like the ignition key in the car. It starts everything. Nothing that you do, do you do, without a shift in the focus of your attention. For the mind that is on the spirit is life, and the mind that is on the flesh is death. This is Romans chapter 8. And Paul's talking about, like, what is the focus of your attention? When I'm paying attention to the things of the spirit, when I'm attuned to the things of the spirit, whether those things are outside my body or inside my body, that's life. Death is when I'm not paying attention to what I'm paying attention to. Because most of our trouble, and Paul's trouble, includes the fact that my attentional mechanism has been hijacked and I'm just walking around on autopilot, as are most of us in this room most days. I move from my attention then back to my body. Am I actually paying attention to my body? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Right? 1 Corinthians 6.19. Paul does not say, do you not know that your mind is the temple, that your heart is the temple, that your soul is the do you not, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what's crucial. You know, Paul has this interesting thing of messing around with pronouns. The notion that your body is to imply it's not just your body and yours and yours and yours. It's yours and yours and your body. He's implying both the body of each individual member at that church, and the fact that you, that we, are the body of Jesus. And so to pay attention to my physical body is important, but I also must be paying attention to the physical body, the relational body that I have with you as well. How well am I paying attention to what I'm paying attention to? There are multiple other domains we could talk about. We could talk about not just my body as it exists and as I feel things and sense things in it. We could talk about the differences in the function of my right brain and my left brain. They have different things that they do. And we talk about my function of memory, and not just do I remember where I put my car keys, but the implicit memory of what it was like for me growing up, as Paul did in his home with an alcoholic father. I remember another couple that I took care of in which they'd had a fight the night before they came to see me. And in the middle of the fight in their kitchen after work one day, he gets in his car and takes off. In the middle of the fight. And uh, after we all agreed that that was not really a helpful tactic, <laughs> I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know where he was learning this, right? You know, we could say, well, why what was your reason for doing that? And he would say, and it would make sense, and like we, we, we wouldn't argue with him. He would say, like, look, I left because I didn't want to say something that I would regret. It was the way for me to kind of like control my mouth, control my anger. Like, okay, I get it. But what he won't say is, I think I was having an implicit memory of what it was like when I was 10 years old and my alcoholic father would come home and be in a rage, and the only thing I could do to protect myself was to get on my bicycle and leave. He was just remembering that's mostly what he was doing. How many of us are being governed by our implicit memory, and that memory, because we're not paying attention, is hijacking our behavior and causing us to do things that are creating other problems for us between us and our relational people 
whom we need to help my mind be integrated. Are you with me? It's all very simple. And we move from memory to the domain of our narrative, like how we tell stories. We said earlier, that's what human beings do. We tell stories all day, every day. It's what we're doing. We wake up in the morning, and we say, uh, it's morning. You know, and we're telling a story. And then we get to the bathroom, and it gets worse, right, because we have mirrors. <laughs> and on and on and on and on, right? And then we get you know, to the boardroom. And, you know, for Paul, he would get to his elder meetings. And the whole time he's there having to work really hard to make sure that they knew that he had all this stuff together. You know how hard this is to pretend you're somebody you're not? Nod your head. You do. Right? I know. I know. I know. I tell people, I'm a professional sinner. If I said that, I don't know if I said this to you. Like, because I think that if you're really good at something and you've been doing it for a long time, you can call yourself a professional. I've been doing this for 55 years. I'm so good at it, I don't even have to practice anymore. I am glad that there are only 10 commandments, because if there were 15 or 20, I'd be breaking twice as many as I'm already breaking. But we are good at telling our story in ways that create problems for us. What's the story that you're telling? your narrative domain. And there are multiple other ones that we can talk about that we don't have time for tonight. But the point is this, that God has made us multi-dimensional, just like a brilliant orchestra. And he's made us to live what we would call integrated lives. The word integrated is explicit to this field of interpersonal neurobiology because to be an integrated person means that in our language we would say you're both a differentiated and you're a linked person. What does that mean? Well, in our orchestra example, each section of the orchestra, we want to know that the woodwinds are really, really good at what they do. They've practiced, 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 and they know their part. And the brass knows its part, and the strings knows its part, the percussion knows its parts. But we also know that we don't want to listen to an orchestra in which the brass kind of like gets it in their head. They're like, we just want to be all that. And all I'm listening to are the brass because they're just like, they know the piccolos are trying to play and the trumpets are just blowing in their ears. They can be well differentiated, but they also need to be linked. They also have to pay attention to the place that the other part of the orchestra needs to play when they need to play it. And this is why we have a conductor. And in the human brain, it is the middle prefrontal cortex, the part that sits right behind your eyes. It is the part of the brain that occupies all those nerve cells whose job it is to be the conductor. But I don't magically learn how to be a good conductor of my own mind if I don't have the opportunity to be taught by someone else growing up relationally. Conductors don't just emerge. They have to learn how to conduct an orchestra. And my conductor needs to learn from somebody else who hopefully has learned from somebody else. Now, mental health, in our language, would be a mind that is integrated. And a mind that is integrated, 
Therefore, be ye whole, even as your Father in heaven is also whole. Be ye perfect, right? Be ye whole. Another word that we would say was, I could easily imagine Jesus saying, be ye integrated. Be ye well differentiated. The parts of you that I've made to be in charge of emotion, for instance, I want you to pay attention to that. The parts of you that are in charge of thinking, I want you to pay attention to that. The parts of you that are in charge of sensing, I want you to pay attention to that. Your narrator brain, I want you to pay attention to that. You're like, gosh, I don't have time to pay all attention to all these things. But we've been made in God's image. We've been made in the image of a triune God. We've been made in the image of a God that is multidimensional. A God that is well differentiated and linked. Are you with me? For us to live into mental health is to live like God lives. But we, when we hear this, cannot imagine for a moment that what that means is that I am having to live into mental health. There is no I live a mentally healthy life. It's only we live mentally healthy lives together. Because apart from we, I die on the vine. So that's what a flourishing mind would look like. We pause with the neuroscience and we go back to where we left our anthropology. And we run smack into the third chapter of Genesis, at which a very different conversation is taking place. conversation which we learn right off the bat that the serpent was the craftiest of all the animals that was in the garden. It's crafty. And the writer of the text is telling us that this animal has intention to fool someone. It is its intention to fool you. And I want to suggest that that evil presence is really good at its job. And in this third chapter of Genesis, I would also invite you to consider that the whole notion of his use of shame as a neurophysiological process, as a neurophysiological process, not just as this abstract thing that we talk about, because it's important to know that shame is not an abstraction. It's what happens to you first and foremost in your body. And it happens early in your life. Children can experience shame and do as early as 15 to 18 months of life. Long before they have language, long before they ever have the capacity to understand why they sense it or feel it, they can just be in the room when their parents are arguing with each other. It already sounds really hopeful, doesn't it? I have a patient who, when she was 19, her father came to her and said, I just want to let you know that I'm leaving your mother and I'm moving to Seattle where I have another family. You're like, that's whacked. I mean, that's like the clinical term for it, right? <laughs> he said, but don't worry, because it's not your fault. And we're like, like, that's even more whacked. You see, because it would not be hard for her to reason, gosh, let's see, you're leaving us, you're going to Seattle, you could choose to be with us, but you choose not to be with us. Why is that like, what else do I have to understand but like that it's not my fault? 
Like, what else could I be doing? Because this is what she began to do as a 19-year-old. What did I do wrong? What is wrong with me? And here's the thing. It didn't matter that he told her it's not your fault. Her body didn't believe him. And what she has to do is to make up a different story in order for her to cope with her shame that she didn't even know was shame because it's first and foremost something that's happening to that part of her and to us that we often aren't paying any attention to. If we read the text, the serpent starts and basically says something that's not all that different from what my patient heard. It's almost like saying to Eve, you, like, you've come to believe that your father loves you in the way that you've come to believe that he does, but I've got news for you. He doesn't want you eating of that tree because he knows that in the day that you do, you'll become like him. Imagine, he thinks, you know, he, he and this is how shame works, right? It gives us facts and lets us draw all kinds of emotional conclusions from it. Because it doesn't take much for her to draw some other conclusions. Well, my goodness, what does it mean about me? You see, the devil will tell us all kinds of things about other people and leave the rest up to me to decide about myself. Because if I'm Eve and I hear that, the, that, that my God that I, that I think that I've loved, that I've walked in the garden with all these years, who knows how long, he doesn't really want me to be part of his life, that's not just telling me something about him. Are you with me? Now, it's interesting because the text is clear that the devil doesn't turn to her and say, like, and by the way, what do you think that means about you? No, he lets her do all that work by herself. But one of the things that makes it possible is the fact that he's talking to her by herself. There is evidence to consider that Adam is present but asleep at the wheel again. (laughs) One of... Shame's primary modes of operation is that of isolating its victim. It isolates parts of our mind within our mind, and then in the same way is isolating me simultaneously from you. And this is how shame does its work. And it's really good at it. And we go from this feeling, sensing, physical experience, this neurophysiologic experience that she has. And like, if I'm Eve, no wonder the fruit on the tree starts to look so good. And now I pick it. It's not given to me. I take it because if I can know that I know that I know from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if I can know things, then I don't have to worry about needing you. I don't have to worry about being vulnerable ever again. I don't have to worry about needing someone who's going to burn me. And you see, the odd thing for my friend Paul is that as much as he knew the gospel, as much as he had been transformed by it as a 20-year-old, he still had enough memory of what it was like to be in his house for him to know and to live out that if you let people get close enough, at some point, disaster is just waiting around the corner. And so he's working really, really hard to do the best he can to make sure he doesn't screw up. And what do you know? Like his church mushrooms because of his leadership, because of his giftedness. And before you know that, he's terrified that at some point somebody's going to find out that he's not all that and everything's going to implode. And his way of coping with that, first of all, was just to work harder. 
And at some point, the work wasn't really doing it for him. And so he, like, he starts to drink. You see, shame does to us as individuals what evil was doing to Eve and that it extends itself into the community. Because if my mind really is relational, it means that if my mind starts to take on water, your mind is going to be affected by it. It's important to know this. One of the things that's true about human beings, uh, Christians more than anybody, is that we don't really believe that we have that much impact in the people around us. We don't really believe that we carry that much heft emotionally in the world. Oh, our theology might tell us that, but like I wake up in the morning and I'm worried that I'm like, I'm not doing things well enough or I'm not doing things, whatever, all that, right? And I so practice managing my shame that I don't recognize that all of that interpersonal neurobiological energy that is being used to regulate that eventually costs me such that my warning signs start to go off in my brain. And when human beings get, like, their warning sign is that we get anxious, right? Nobody ever, interestingly enough, nobody ever just shows up one day depressed. Nobody ever just is fine, like really fine, really well, flourishing, and the next morning they wake up and they're depressed. We become depressed when we are no longer able to manage that which makes us anxious. Right? We become depressed when we are no longer able to manage that which makes us anxious. Because when we are in distress, we become anxious. And the state of our anxiety increases the more disintegrated we are. And one of the primary ways that we become increasingly disintegrated Disconnected, those instruments not paying attention to each other, those instruments not being very well developed. I mean, how many of us grew up in homes where to talk about emotion just was something we never did? And if that's the case, that means that there's lots of things that you're going to be feeling in your body that you're not aware that you're feeling. And your emotions are going to be running things for you that you don't know that they're running until you start to get anxious about it, but you have no idea where this is coming from. And then I start to regulate my anxiety. And I do as, as well as I can until I start to run out of gas. And then I don't sleep as well. And I don't concentrate as well. And before you know it, I really do need to be talking to someone who can help me make sense of this disintegrated mind of mine. Now here's the other thing that shame does. Evil's really aware that there's power in numbers. And so you see, we jump from Genesis 3 to John 9, and the transition isn't that hard for us to get there. Like, what's that got to do with anything? In John 9, we open the chapter to see that Jesus and the disciples are walking along, and as they do, they come upon a man born blind. And this guy doesn't even get a name. He doesn't like Bartimaeus. Nope, just a blind dude, okay? Now remember, Jesus and the disciples are walking along, and the disciples ask a question. You remember what the question was? Who sinned? Is this not shame already at work? Right? This is condemnation like right out of the gate. They're like, look, if I'm like Peter or James, like, I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, Jesus, it's a blind guy. Heal him. We'll, like, we'll, you know, Instagram. It'll be, it'll be awesome. 
would be great marketing opportunity. No, they don't see this. They're already locked in this shame cycle of condemnation. You see, in this sense, shame has already infected the entire community. They think that they're doing a good thing. They think that they're asking the right theological question. They think that they're talking, as we should, first about total depravity. Look, I like reformed people. Reformed people are some of my best friends. And here's the odd thing. Like, it's, like it's really odd, right? Because here, like, like they're the deacons in the church, and they're asking, who screwed up? We want to know so that we can fix it. And Jesus says the most remarkable thing. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned such that he was born blind. Now, won't that mess with your theology? But like, like, I'm not making this up. Jesus is the one who said it. You take it up with him. (laughs) Not this man nor his parents sinned such that he was born blind, but he was born blind such that the works of God might be revealed in him. How many of us Let me ask this question. How many of us in the last week have had some experience of shame that we really remember and we really can remember it as a very, really unpleasant experience? How many of us have raise your hand? I know the ones who don't raise your hand, you're just lying. <laughs> All right, so we, we, we know what these things are. How many of us, if we remember that moment, what would it be like when we, 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 like, there is this thing about which we are ashamed, and in the moment that we're feeling this, you feel this touch on your shoulder, and you turn... And there's some 33-year-old Palestinian dude in blue jeans and a t-shirt who says to you, I can't wait to see what you and I are going to do in the next five minutes. How many of us would see or hear Jesus saying, what's happening right now is just God waiting for himself to be revealed in you? You're like, dang. Dang. Like, it, it, would be, it would be bewildering. We would, not, we would not make any sense to us because we only know that shame has one ending to the movie. And then Jesus does this really remarkable thing, right? And that remarkable thing is he takes mud after spitting on the ground, echoing Genesis chapter 2. This is God making man from the dust of the earth all over again. This is new life coming at you. Mental health is not about getting back to baseline. When we are broken, when we are anxious, when we are depressed, when we are alcoholic, when we are this, when we are that, that, it is about God making new things. It is about Jesus finding you in your worst moment and saying, this is an opportunity for the works of God to be revealed in you. But I want to say, like, I have a hard time buying that because I've been buying the story of shame all 55 of my years. And so what does Jesus do? He makes mud, he slaps it on the dude's face. And it's a little odd, right? Because the guy wasn't, he, like, the te- he's just there. He's not asking for healing. Next thing you know, slap, slap. I've got mud on my face. <laughs> right? I don't know where this is going. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, fine. But they don't say that to me. Jesus doesn't say, hey, 
New creation's coming. Great, great. No, none of that. I just, and then he says, now, go wash in the pool. Go, like, I can't see the pool. Where's the pool? <laughs> like, what's he doing? Like, I don't know. He goes and washes in the pool, right? And like, a healing has taken place. And then what? All hell breaks loose. This is important to know. Healing is always disruptive. Healing is always disruptive. And Jesus apologizes for none of it. And I'm like, if I'm the blind guy, I'm coming back from, like, I can see. Like, holy cow, like, these are my hands, right? I don't, I've never seen my hands. I've never seen anybody's hands. I've never, like, and the next thing you know, the neighbor's like, hey, who are you? Walking around like you can see. And he's like, well, what do you mean? Well, well, what's, and he's like, the community. The people with whom he should ostensibly be the safest now become the most dangerous people in his life. First it's the community, and then the community takes him to the church leaders. Oh, this just gets better and better. <laughs> and sequentially, he's thrown under the bus one, two, three times until finally they're having this final, like, dramatic conversation, right, where they're saying, like, well, how, like, who is the guy? Well, like, I told you, I've not seen him. <laughs> Hello? And the guy, like, blind guy, but he's pretty well educated. Like, these guys, and he says to them, like, what? Do you want to be his disciples too? And they say to him, what? You, you want to educate us? You who were born into sin answering the disciples' question. Everybody's in cahoots. The entire trustworthy, trusted, familial, religious family is the system that is blinder than our man who's been healed. Jesus is coming, and when he does, he is going to disrupt everything and this is what healing does. And so this is part of the thing, right? You want to go see a therapist? And I want to say to you, if you even, like, imagine it, then, then you're already, like, you should have been there, like, two weeks ago. <laughs> okay? Because Elizabeth has prescriptions to write. <laughs> that pen of hers is looking for some exercise. Okay, do you know what's happening right now? This is a kind of cool thing. Like the levity, like you're like I'm I'm, I'm glad that you're laughing because like my wife doesn't laugh at my jokes all the time, and I'm I'm glad you're laughing because oh oh Ricardo, you're like oh I see that. Okay, okay, right. Do you not laugh at his jokes frequently enough? Shame on you. I love that man. He said so. He loves me. Shame on you. So like, here's the really good news. Part of the really good news is that like, if you're laughing, your brain loves this. That you are laughing in community, it loves it even more. Because joy is why you were made. Evil wants none of this. 
And so here's what's going to happen. Even tonight, as things begin to happen for you that are good, you imagine, oh my gosh, could, could it be that I could be healed like the blind guy was? Okay, I recognize that like, things are going to get disruptive. Like I recognize that. Like, because it's important to know. At the end of the story, what happens? Jesus comes to find him. Jesus, like, Jesus is coming to find you. Now imagine, if I'm the blind guy, I might have some questions, because if I was like, I could have used you like a few hours ago. <laughs> because God's timing, I want to tell you, God's timing is frequently different than mine. It's frequently different than mine. But I want to say that even if that's the case, God's timing is always meant to bring us into a place of goodness and beauty and joy. It is disrupting, but it is what the new heaven and the new earth are about. This is what it means to make new stuff. We make new things. In our brokenness, coming to see a mental health professional is about giving God the opportunity to say to you, I can't wait to see where in your shame my works are going to be revealed. Your shame is going to want to tell you no, because if I go, like this is Paul's problem, right? Paul's problem was that his shame was telling him, I can't go because if I go, I will be discovered. I will be found out. I will be defrocked. I will lose my congregation. I will lose myself, so forth and so on and so on. It's like a recapitulation of growing up in his house. Paul started individual counseling with me. He started an antidepressant. He was on that for about 18 months because his shame had so pounded his brain that he needed that kind of support. But within about six months, he started into a group that we run. And I will tell you the last thing that healing really is about. It is about bringing you not just back to wholeness yourself. Your own personal wholeness is always, 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 did I say always? Always connected to your connection to other people. It is always connected to your wholeness with others. Let us make mankind in our image. And your healing, your wholeness, your new created you that Jesus is in the business of doing, slapping mud on all of our eyes, brings us back to Psalm 27.4. And we might wonder, what's that got to do with anything? There's one thing that I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after. One thing. That I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house. That I will behold, that I will gaze upon his beauty. And that I will inquire of the Lord in his temple. But Jesus takes this one step further because he shows up in the second chapter of John, the 19th verse, when he's clearing the temple and he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. You see, he's already helping people reimagine Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is about a building that took 46 years to build, as far as they were concerned. 
this second temple. And Jesus is saying, no, the temple where you will dwell all the days of your life, the temple where you want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, where you gaze on the Lord, that temple is me. This is Jesus talking. Are you with me? We're moving from Psalm 27 to John 2 to 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, among other places, that you are the body of Christ. Therefore, the temple that is Jesus in John 2 now becomes us. You see the progression? And from there, we read this. Revelation chapter 3, verse 11. I'm coming soon. Jesus is coming for you. He's coming to find you. He's coming to find me in our blindness, to disrupt us, to make new stuff. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. If you conquer, get this, if you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You become God's temple where you will dwell for the rest of your days. You will never go out of it. Remember what the psalmist prays, I want to dwell all the days of my life. I will write on you the name of my God. It's not just his law that he writes in your heart, he writes his name on you. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. This is what work means and looks like for us to approach mental health and mental wellness. It means that we live in community in which we are going to inquire of the Lord. We are going to inquire by being in this temple. By being in the temple means, that may mean like sitting with a counselor because that's the body of Christ. It may mean sitting in a group. That's the body of Christ, where you are gazing upon his beauty. To gaze upon the beauty of God is to gaze upon someone else gazing at you in your worst moments. Did you hear that? To gaze upon the beauty of God is to gaze upon someone else gazing at you in your worst moments, and that other person sitting across the room for you saying, I can't wait to see how the goodness of God, the works of God, are about to emerge in you even in this really hard place. But we need the other to help me believe this because my mind cannot do this by itself. What we end up practicing then is the life that is leading to the new heaven and the new earth in which we're not just going to be mentally healthy, we are going to be living pillars of goodness, beauty, and joy. Thanks be to God.